Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. Welcome back to a new season of the RCAP USA Roundup. On our first episode back, we are so excited to sit down with Indiana producer and rural advocate, Greg Gunthorpe, to discuss global corporate agriculture, local food systems, advocating for rural America, competitive markets, and more. This episode is sponsored by Ag Risk Advisors. Ag Risk Advisors provide risk management solutions for food and fiber producers. Their goal is to educate and advise their customers on all options available to them, including public programs offered through federal crop insurance, private programs offering deeper levels of coverage, and hedging programs protecting them against market volatility. Learn more at agriskadvisors.com. Thank you for your support of RCAP USA, and thank you for being a 2023 convention sponsor. Let's work together so that no rancher is left behind. Did you know agriculture had the highest suicide rate of all other occupations from 1992 to 2010? If you are a struggling rancher, farmer, or our family and friends, we encourage you to join our weekly support group style virtual meetings for those in agriculture to gather and converse in a safe space. Meetings are led by Koi Young and held every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Mountain Time on Zoom. To get meeting details for various suicide hotline phone numbers, other areas of support, and to learn more, visit norancherleftbehind.com. Okay, well, Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Let's start simple. Why don't you just introduce yourself, kind of just tell us about yourself, your family, and your operation. Sure. I'm Greg Gunthorpe. Uh, We have a family farm in uh, Northeast Indiana, in LaGrange, Indiana. Uh, We raise uh, pigs, turkeys, and sheep on pasture. We have a USDA inspected processing plant. And the um, short story of me is the, um, I grew up on a diversified uh, crop and livestock farm. Uh, My dad and brother still farm that. It was about 600 acres when I was young. Uh, raised uh, farrow to finish pasture pig operation, uh, finished some cattle. Uh, Dad and grandpa finished two, 300 head of cattle until 1985. Uh, some small square bales of hay, wheat, corn, alfalfa, diversified crop and livestock farm, traditional independent family farm. Uh, I went off to um, college, uh, knew I always wanted to raise pigs and actually went off to England and Scotland uh, the summer after my graduation as an exchange student with the FFA. Uh, Come back home to farm uh, in the early 90s, uh, about four years into that, dad said the hog industry is finished for the independent family farm. It's going to sell to sows. I said, I want to raise pigs. I went to college to raise pigs, grew up knowing I wanted to raise pigs. I'm not done raising pigs. So my wife and I went off on our own. Uh, I'd bought a farm in 1990. We had 64 acres, was uh, raising pigs. Four years later, found out my dad was right. 1998, my wife and I sold live pigs for less than what my grandpa sold them for in the depression. We netted as low as five cents a pound for pigs. Uh, Pricing the grocery store, 
actually went up from a 259 uh, retail average to a 261 a pound uh, retail average. Uh, so the system was as rigged back then as well, it's actually more rigged now, but that's beside the point. Uh, but I still said, I don't want to quit raising pigs. Uh, and I said, you know, I uh, stayed at um, 11 different uh, family uh, farms when I was in England and Scotland. Two of them were making a living uh, direct marketing, selling to restaurants, retailers, to individuals. At the time, and I wish mom, she probably still has the letter somewhere, but I wrote home saying that that was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. I can't imagine making a living, uh, actually getting your animals processed and direct marketing them. But uh, 10 years later, I said, you know, uh, I think we can eke out a living if we'd make some connections with some chefs in the big city. And a little bit of luck and some fate, uh, we connected with uh, Charlie Trotter in Chicago Wine Spectator magazine that same month, uh, rated him the best restaurant in the world uh, for food and wine. And that was our first customer. And it started slow, but it gained some traction. Uh, had we filled out the paperwork in 2011, uh, Inc. Uh, we'd have been on the Inc. 5000 list somewhere in that 16 to 1700 fastest growing independent uh, companies in the country. So it's been an amazing, amazing journey. Uh, you know, we built a USDA inspected processing plant on the farm. Our product is uh, served at O'Hare Airport. It served at the um, Wrigley Field at the clubhouse to the players. Uh, it served at Disney. Um, you know, this whole farm to table movement has been a uh, really, really, like I said, amazing journey, and it's been fun. Uh, but the um, story now is that, um, you know, we built some uh, viable niches um, as direct marketers, and virtually every one of these viable niches, uh, Big Ag has uh, co-opted, and wholesale is getting really, really difficult uh, to the point that most days, I would say that uh, wholesale for direct marketing is probably actually done uh, for the small independent farmers and the small independent processors. Still think there's some huge opportunities out here, uh, but I think that direct to consumer is uh, um, probably the biggest opportunities. And I think except for, a, you know, there'll still be some people uh, that stick it out. Uh, you know, there's still some independent hog farmers. I don't know if there's any independent uh, egg producers or uh, broiler producers, but you know, some people stick on a lot longer than they should. So uh, there's there's some really tough, uh, stubborn people out here in uh, rural America. And there'll still be some uh, small processors and there'll still be some people wholesaling. Uh, but I, don't, I think in general, um, we rode it at, the, we were at the right place at the right time. Um, and it, it, like I said, it's been an amazing journey. So let's talk about a few things that, that you just kind of said in your story. Um, you got to really highlight your story this summer in front of the House Judiciary Committee hearing, a hearing that was titled, Where's the Beef? Regulatory Barriers to Entry and Competition in Meat Processing. Can you talk to us about that experience and why you were called to testify at that committee hearing? Sure. Um, that's a great question. And uh, that, that was a huge, huge honor. And let me go back just a little bit uh, further Um I, I've been doing advocacy work for uh, more than two two not two generations, more than two decades. Um, uh, I started um, 
I served on the USDA Small Farm Commission back when Clinton was president and Glickman was secretary of agriculture. So I've been kicking this can down the road for a long time. Uh, was you know It's one of those things when an email pops up in your email box and it's coming from the um, council of the um, GOP's uh, House Judiciary Committee, you kind of think, oh yeah, that's probably a scam. And then you realize, no, it actually wasn't uh, when they call you. Um, and uh, the um, GOP vetted me uh, said that um, they were going to give me an invitation to, um, and at the last minute, uh, I got an email from them and they said that they were going a um, different direction. And then the um, less than five minutes later, uh, the Democrats uh, send me an email and uh, tell me that they want to offer me an invite to um, uh, come and testify at the um, House Judiciary Committee. And I thought, oh, I know how this already goes. We've seen this before. Um, but they actually sent me a formal invite. And so, you know, loaded up and uh, went to Washington, D.C. You know, if you do advocacy work, I think that's probably one of the um, higher things on your list is, you know, to either talk to the president or to um, get invited to a Senate or House um, committee uh, hearing. And, you know, the hearing was about uh, regulatory reform and antitrust. And those are both um, huge issues that I love to talk about. And that, um, I think as a country that we strongly need to address uh, both of them. I uh, was kind of disappointed that, and you know, it was what I expected, I guess, but uh, the um, committee was uh, extremely divided on the, you know, one side wanted regulatory reform, the other side wanted antitrust enforcement, and they really didn't want to discuss the other side's issue. And I'm firmly of the opinion that we need both of those. And that uh, I think that the majority of people in rural America um, believe that we need both, both of those. Uh, you know, the um, small producers and small processors that want to um, direct market, want to process their own animals, uh, need a legitimate pathway uh, to be able to legally get those animals um, to consumers. The same as all of us, whether we're direct marketers or whether we're um, commodity producers, need antitrust enforcement. The whole basis of our um, society um, is the idea that we have, um, you know, not excessive power in the hands of few. And agriculture has went so far beyond uh, where they're taking away opportunities for producers and choices for consumers because of excessive power in the hands of the packers and the retailers. And we already have the laws on the books and they need to enforce them. And that's that was my basic uh, message. I think that uh, there's a um, rumble uh, video circulating because I was actually very fortunate. I think I got about 25 minutes of the um, time of the hearing to talk uh, and got to, um, present most of the issues that I wanted. I was a little bit naive in, uh, and I should have known better. Uh, there's some congressmen that'll really cut you off really quick if you don't really get to the point. And, you know, I've, I've got a few things that I love to add into conversations, but I'm normally pretty good about uh, setting them up so that I get to say them. You don't get the time to set them up in a House Judiciary Committee. And I, I learned a lot. Uh, maybe I'll get back, invited back again someday, but... Uh, um, it, it was the experience of a lifetime. Uh, and I, I think the biggest thing that it's done is that there's been huge amount of people that have reached out. It, it's uh, vastly impro uh, 
improved and uh, expanded my network uh, from people, not even just all over the country, but all over the world, uh, wanting to address these issues. And, and I think it's provided me some opportunities to talk to uh, more um, congressmen and senators on both sides of the aisle. Uh, trying to get them together so that they'll work on both of these issues, not just uh, keep coming up with excuses. You know, one of the things that you um, were able to touch on it in that House Judiciary Committee meeting, which I encourage everybody to go back and watch, it's on YouTube, it's Where's the Beef? Regulatory Barriers to Entry and Competition in Meat Processing. But one of the things that you touched on um, at that hearing was the fact that the commodity market is essential to the niche market. Why are farm-to-plate systems dependent on value discovery of the larger market? Yeah, the you know, I've been saying that for a while because I, I was naive when I first got into this and thought that we really got into um, niche production uh, because the commodity market had screwed us so bad and there really wasn't an opportunity for the independent hog farmer. Um, but I've come full circle and realized that in order to um, uh, sell our product, we have to have a viable um, commodity market. And there, there's several reasons for that. Um, price discovery in the protein sector has become extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, you know, there, there's not really good price discovery. And, um, you know, it started obviously, and I think everyone knows this, it started in eggs, uh, broilers, um, fat cattle, um, and then uh, the hog industry and price discovery in all of these uh, sectors are complicated or non-existent at best. Um, you know, in pigs right now, uh, within the last year, the pork cutout price has been as low as 82 cents a pound. Um, you know, that that's less than 10 percent of the um, pork trade. Um, that's a switch from. Um, pigs used to be priced off a non-existent uh, spot market where only 2% of the pigs um, were pricing the majority of the rest of the pigs. And, you know, in a um, functioning marketplace, um, you have many buyers and many sellers. But right now, um, you know, we're competing against a few um, distributors that have access to some of that pork cutout, you know, the same as in the beef trade. Uh, you know, the guys direct marketing any wholesale product right now are being uh, competing against guys that can get foreign product uh, mixed with um, fat from the excess of the US and added in, uh, what's the term, lean, fine textured uh, beef, uh, you know, referred to as pink slime or whatever, uh, you know, with a product of USA label on it um, at $2 and something a pound uh, when they're trying to direct market beef at $5 you know, ground beef. Uh, we're, we're facing the same thing in the um, pig industry, you know, where we try to sell trim products at three to um, four ninety nine a pound, depending on how much extra um, work and packaging we've put into it. And there's product out there in the marketplace at a dollar and something a pound, you know, and you can't compete with that um, product. So if there's not a viable um, commodity market, um, the direct marketers don't stand a chance because, you know, you can have an extremely loyal customer but when that customer um, is pressured by a dozen salespeople with product that is a tenth of your price or a third of your price, you know, some of them are loyal, but some of them, you know, it, it, they can only take so much pressure and they're competing against the guy 
down the road that's get buying that stuff for the same price saying he's a farm to table uh restaurant and you know they they cave and you can't really blame them because the majority of farm table product now comes off the cisco truck and the little guy can't compete with the cisco truck that's so true so as you um and your your wife have moved into well and really are are perfecting the whole farm to table local food system, you know, system, I guess, talk to us about the challenges of redefining that local food system and, um, the challenges you faced. You know, the, um, challenges when you're starting up, uh, and the house judiciary committee was uh, attempting to address these. Uh, but the biggest challenge when you're starting up is figuring out how to fit into that USDA inspection system. It's really complicated for new entries to get into the um, USDA inspection system. It took us 14 months from the time I filled out a grant of inspection application with the Chicago district to even get USDA to come out and visit with us. Not to get our inspection, but to get them to even come out and visit with us. They've actually got a lot better about that. There's still some uh, limited situations at times and I actually help some uh, friends and processors uh, work through and navigate that system. I'm helping one in the Philadelphia district right now that took about, about six months to get USDA to even come out and talk to him and then just come up with the craziest um, ideas of what they actually needed. And he had no due process whatsoever to deal with that. Um, but, you know, so so that's the biggest challenge is to fit into the USDA inspection system. But I like my uh, friend Will Harris's analogy best about it. And I think I shared it at the House Judiciary Committee. You know, that it's a huge, huge hill uh, to get up to be able to get USDA inspection. Uh, but it's only when you get on top of that hill that you realize that it's the mountain behind it, and that's your market access piece. Uh, it is really, really difficult uh, and almost virtually impossible uh, for a um, small producer uh, to get a USDA and processing plant and then to figure out a means of how they can get their animals harvested, uh, processed into some kind of package so that uh, they can sell the whole carcass and so that they can fit into the current uh, distribution system with either uh, food service or retailers. Um, we don't fit into that system at all. Um, you know, we've sold as much as a million pounds of product a year. And we, uh, we have a couple distributors for some locations that we personally can't deliver. Uh, but we've never had a distributor. We've had to self-distribute. Uh, we, um, you know, by the time you get that whole... Um, quality, price point, um, uh, product expectation, all of that. Um, we don't fit in a distribution model. And most small processors and small producers don't fit into a distribution model. Distributors like to take 40 to 60% of the um, sales. And there's, there's nobody that can hit a price point uh, that, uh, um, that it works for the um, producer, the distributor, and the end consumer. Uh, in that model. Uh, it's virtually impossible to get shelf space at any of the retailers. And I'd argue that's because they're already selling the big guys product that implies that it's the same as ours. Uh, 
Uh, you can't put legitimate product beside somebody that's implying it uh, because our product's going to be way more expensive. And then consumers are going to start asking, hey, what's the deal here? Why is this guy way more expensive than the um, Tyson uh, grass-fed beef? I mean, it's like, come on. You know, I'm not to pick on any names or anything, but they're probably the largest uh, player in uh, Whole Foods grass-fed beef with their um, forage-fed feedlot beef. That's not what consumer expects. Uh, any more than, you know, we couldn't get uh, um, shelf space at Whole Foods because the overwhelming majority of their uh, pigs under their global animal partnership level one and level two is typical confinement pigs and I actually don't have a problem with uh, people whatever choice they want to raise their animals but I have a problem with uh, labeling that is not truthful and labeling that's implying that it's something else because I think the big thing uh, that um, producers forget about this and I think they've actually the industry has done a really good job of getting us to fight amongst ourselves on these issues. Uh, but I think the biggest thing that we forget as producers is that um, uh, this truth and labeling is harming both producers and consumers. And it's harming uh, producers because when they take commodity product and the packers and the retailers are the ones that are able to capture a premium by implying that that's something else, they're not sharing any of that premium back with the producers. And so in the process, they're harming commodity producers and they're ruining the demand for niches. And so that's taking away all of our opportunities. You know, my, my county is an excellent example uh, on that in the dairy industry. We're, in, we're the third largest Amish community in the country. And we have, a, I believe about 154 dairies left in the county. Four of them are conventional dairies. 150 of them are organic dairies, uh, the, and they're mostly Amish. But those guys figured out they couldn't compete in conventional dairy. They said, hey, you give us a big enough premium, we'll figure out how not to use antibiotics, we'll figure out how not to use pesticides, and we'll sell you organic milk. Organic milk got as high as 40-some dollars a hundredweight. It's back into the 20s now because there's 2,000 to 20,000 cow dairies put out west in areas that there's no way in the world that they can graze because their grass doesn't grow. So the certifiers give them a, a waiver or an exemption. They don't have to get 30% of their dry matter from grazing because you can't grow that much grass. That's completely disingenuous in the intent of the rule and the organic dairies in our county, anytime that they have to buy feed, they close up because they can't afford their feed bill. The, Organic dairy is, should be the kind of dairies that are in our area. It costs them substantially more to produce milk than what a conventional dairy is. Everybody that buys organic milk should know that. We should not allow systems that circumvent truth and labeling. And, you know, it just takes away opportunities. And, the you know, the dairy industry um, has been completely destroyed. I'm on the east side of the Corn Belt. Uh, so, you know, we were hog and uh, dairy, you know, the I, I assume most of your members beef cows on the, you know, west of the Corn Belt, but uh, county next to me had 400 dairy farms when I was little. Uh, there are four of them uh, left. Um, you know, we should have done something uh, to ensure that we still had an independent traditional family farm. And I still don't think it's too late. We should at least allow some of the people that want to do something different uh, to have truth and labeling so that if they want to build a viable niche, 
that they have some control from what I consider uh, predatory practices in the marketplace. It's part of a antitrust enforcement. It's part of what is required for a fair and competitive market. So let's talk about a labeling issue that is particularly sensitive to the industry you're in, and that being the swine industry. Um, Proposition 12 in California, could accurate labeling and consumer choice have helped to avoid this legislation that, that ended up going through? Absolutely could have played a big role. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, uh, that's one of the other uh, issues that they um, pit farmers against each other and farmers against consumers. And, you know, the um, if uh, as a um, industry, if the processors and the retailers uh, were more accurate in conveying uh, stories and messaging um, and that they were providing consumers actual choices um, and they were paying farmers legitimate premiums uh, to raise products that cost substantially more, um, I think we'd see a lot less regulations in this country um, because in general, I think the overwhelming majority of people in the United States actually believe in the free market and believe that if people want something different, um, then they should be able to seek it out and they should have to pay a premium for it. That's not legitimately what's happening in the food industry right now. Um, if you go to one of the big retailers, um, there's bunches of brands in there. But all of those brands are controlled by uh, mostly the same four packers in the uh, meat and protein sector and mostly the same 10 multinational corporations on every single thing else in the grocery store. It might have a different name on the package, but consumers realize it's all coming from the same people. They don't believe for a second that all of Tyson's chicken is antibiotic free any more than they believe that picture on that Smithfield pork where it shows the green grass and the red barn up in the corner. They don't believe for a second that the Chinese corporation that owns the majority of the pigs in the United States has any of their pigs that ever see green grass or a red barn in their life. Um, and so consumers are actually pissed off and the activists have, uh, you know, we give them ammunition because, um, you know, you can't tell them, well, if people wanted to buy this, all they had to do was pay a premium. And then they say, well, Greg's out here saying that he'd love to sell to California, but he can't get any damn shelf space in California. So, I mean, at some point, don't we have to look at the um, checkoff organizations, the packers, uh, the retailers and say, hey, you guys got to be honest. Um, if you want people to do something different, pay them a legitimate premium. There's probably farmers out there that'll do it. And if you're paying them that premium and that farmer decides, hey, that's not worth it, we're going to go back to a viable commodity market. We don't have either of those in the um, ag industry. How important is it to have multiple independent producers um, you know, spread across the country in a competitive market in rural America versus having employees of an industrialized system just raising livestock? I think we're getting to the point that this is becoming a um, food security and a national security issue. You know, we all realize the um, central planning, whether that's government or corporations, 
is not something that is efficient, not something that is flexible, and not something that is resilient. And we've also all have to identify that this whole system of agriculture as it's industrialized is economically gutted rural America. Um, you know, if you look at the metrics of rural America, um, we're worse on most of them than what the inner cities are. So this whole idea that we're going to feed people cheap um, and that we're going to have an abundant food supply has not worked for farmers and it hasn't worked for consumers. And we've went far enough down this road, it's probably time to try another path. And I think the thing that resonates most um, with the politicians and resonates most with the consumers and, uh, you know, the consumers got to see behind the curtain at the beginning of the pandemic. This whole idea of uh, changing our food supply away from the independent family farm to one that is owned by multinational corporations and just ran by employees is not resilient. And, you know, we didn't really test the food supply very much at the beginning of COVID. I mean, we're finally starting to see the true facts about COVID. And look. Um, what they lost 25% of their um, processing capacity. Um, the eight, 80 some percent of the beef are slaughtered in 25 or so plants in the United States. 90% of the hogs are slaughtered in 40 some plants in the United States. Uh, almost all of the poultry is slaughtered in 200 plants in the United States. Um, it only takes a, one or two of them to go down. And we have black swan events. Uh, that's not the kind of uh, system. We're an affluent enough society that we could pick a different model. And I'm not saying we have to go back to uh, slaughter plants the size on Gunthorpe Farms. I'm saying that there's something in between there. If that's 400 plants, I don't know what the number is, uh, but I still think that we should have seven and a half percent of the um, capacity should be locker size plants or plants the size of our farm. Uh, and the rest of them should be smaller because it'd be more resilient. And we should have independent family farms, uh, independent family farm, uh, especially one with three generations on the farm is an extremely, extremely resilient model and is the ideal and is what we as a nation should strive for. And if we're going to put any of our taxpayer funded money into a system, it should be to support independent family farms that put multiple generations on the farm and provide for a vibrant uh, rural America. I think you just answered one of my other questions and that being, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and redesign the domestic food system, what would that look like? And you're saying it would be more independent family farms, more independent processors, all of the things, because do you think the American consumer realizes how fragile our industrialized food system is? I think in a way they actually realize, but I think in a way that they uh, they don't want to realize. Um, you know, there's quite a few of us uh, farmers, uh, both commodity and direct marketers before COVID, uh, and we got kind of labeled as we ought to have tinfoil caps on and that uh, especially the direct marketers, we got labeled as granola crunching hippie farmers. When I tell people, you know, there's there's not more than 72 hours worth of food um, in the big cities. If this food supply shuts off, uh, people legitimately aren't going to eat. And we got to start to see that, you know, it didn't get 
as bad as it could have. Uh, but there's nothing stopping an event that could make it where that's a realistic concern. And so, yes, we should have uh, significantly uh, more um, buyers and more sellers. It's, uh, you know, I've got an economics degree from Purdue University, don't claim to be an economist, but, uh, you know, I always tell people that uh, I can remember my AggieCon 101 or whatever the first class was, uh, you know, they go over all of the requirements of what is an actual market. And then we spend the next years at college uh, forgetting that uh, that first class um, none of those criteria are actually met. You know, we don't have many buyers and many sellers. We have extreme concentration. We have all kinds of uh, breaking the rules of what's required for a function to mark uh, a market to function. Um, and then we just act like the market functions. And, you know, I don't want to sound uh, too much like my friend, Mike Calicrate, but he's uh, actually, I don't mind sounding like Mike, but um, he, he's 100% correct in that the marketplace is dysfunctional. And uh, consumers um, are aware of it, but consumers don't want to stop and think about it, and they don't want to put the effort into um, uh, forcing both the food supply and our um, politicians uh, to take the right steps uh, to actually ensure that we can have a vibrant rural America, a resilient food supply, and that we can have a place for the independent traditional family farm, which is the ideal. So let's talk about the consumer being part of the solution. Global ag corporations have focused their time and energy on big ag media and ag state senators and, and congressmen. Is it possible to rally consumers to the independent ag producers cause without creating a panic? And like, how do we do it? Um. You know, I've thought a lot about this topic, and I question, do we have to worry about whether or not we create a panic? Um, you know, in the United States, uh, sometimes the only way that we get people to even move the needle is to create a panic. Um, you know, I've spent 20-some years uh, advocating for the independent family farmer, the um, small processor, and man, we didn't really move the needle much. We've We've won some battles, but in my opinion, we're losing the war. And the beginning of COVID and since then, the conversations on a resilient agriculture are much, much simpler with both sides of the aisle. Um, now getting results out of both of them are still just as difficult. But, um, you know, the um, uh, I think the consumers could play a huge, huge role in this. Um, I think the consumers uh, could provide uh, some farmers uh, with a lot of opportunities if they would search out and want to buy direct from farmers. Um, I think circumventing the um, system whenever they've got a, a chance, uh, you know, I think most uh, consumers quickly realize uh, that the um, commodity food system has some holes, especially on the quality and freshness side. Uh, so I think they can actually um, you know, feed their family uh, something that tastes better doing that. Uh, and at the same time, uh, those dollars go directly to farmers instead of uh, funding multinational corporations. Um, I also think that um, consumers, and we're going to have to get consumers involved uh, to get the numbers because there just aren't enough of us, especially, um, you know, they, there's what, 2 million farmers, I think they say, 
but when you start talking about the number of farmers that are actually independent traditional uh, family farms that are making a living from farming, man, it gets to be a really, really small number, a really, really small number. So unless we can get some other groups uh, to help us with this uh, mission, I think we're I think we're going to struggle. And I see no problem whatsoever in getting them all fired up and uh, thinking that they got to panic because, uh, you know, no matter what, uh, you know, and we see it every day now on people talking about, oh, we can do without these farmers. Oh, we can do without those farmers, um, you know, and, you know, and I'm, I've always said, um, I, I think actually over the last five, seven decades, I think actually our problem's been the opposite that we've actually overproduced. But regardless, we still have to be able to produce food and we still have to have a resilient food supply. And it's probably got to cost a little bit more, whether that's from taxpayer dollars or whether that's consumers paying a little bit more. Um, but we have to put resiliency of our food supply um, a little bit higher than um, the bottom of the food supply. We cannot least cost, uh, especially uh, protein production um, into the future and expect that there's always something on those store shelves that just uh, least costing uh, protein um, uh, and, you know, just in time uh, for 100 percent of it is not a wise idea for feeding people. It's also not a wise idea if we have any morality on, uh, you know, the fact that we're um, supposed to take care of our animals properly. When you put a million of them uh, in a hole uh, at the beginning of hogs at the beginning of the pandemic uh, because uh, processors are closed, um, you know, that that's not a system that anybody can be proud of. And I see some of them defending it now and the uh, price and you can't defend systems on price over that. Um, we're better than that. Those are some great conversations. Um, Greg, thanks again for sharing those insights. Jaden, are you ready to take us out and finish this up? We always close out our podcast with one specific question, and that is, what is your favorite kind of beef and how do you like it prepared? Okay. Um, I think you skipped one question that you told me earlier you were going to ask is the first question. I I'd actually thought about that and had a good answer. Oh, you're right. I totally did. Okay, so back up. <laughs> so we're introducing a new fun question this season. We're trying to bring some, you know, some relief to these real conversations we're having. So, Greg, what would you bring if you could just take three items to a deserted island? Okay, um, I thought about this for a long time, and I've actually got two answers. Uh, so bear with me on it. And my first answer is um, that I would take a um, satellite phone, a boat, and my carry-on luggage. And I think in 2023, I think that's appropriate answer because if you're in the right class, um, interpretation of questions is completely different for one group than it is for another. Now, to answer it in the intent of your question, I would probably take some kind of knife some kind of fire starter and my sleeping bag. I love the thought that was put into that. That was great. <laughs> so now uh, for the last question, we always ask everybody on the podcast, what is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? 
Okay. Um, and this one, if you'll bear with me, just to continue on the line, because I'm sure that some of my comments are a little bit controversial. Uh, so I'm going to continue this line. Uh, first of all, I'm going to say and uh, the pork and the um, beef producers will be offended by this comment, but that doesn't change its validity. Uh, uh, my favorite uh, choice for protein is a properly cooked duck breast. And a properly cooked duck breast is better than any steak or pork chop on the planet. Um, and I have some friends that raise some really, really good steaks. We raise a really, really good pork chop. But now back to answering your question, um, I'm going to answer this one in two ways. And uh, my favorite cut of beef is I like to take a really, really thick uh, bone-in ribeye. So, you know, three-plus inch thick uh, ribeye. I like to lay it on a, um, my green egg uh, when the uh, fire is just about making the egg hopping. I mean, as searing of a fire as you can get. Ten minutes on the first side, six minutes on the second side, shut the egg down with my blue dot thermometer in there, take that thing to about 138, 140 degrees. Slice it at a little bit of an angle, uh, pinch of salt, pinch of pepper on the thing. The thing is amazing. Uh, but my second choice would be uh, some uh, cubed uh, beef, you know, something off the um, chuck or something off from the um, round, uh, five pound package, uh, half a pound of tallow in the thing, uh, some, uh, salt, some black pepper, a little bit of crushed red pepper, um, 12 hours in the circulator. So sous vide, um, 175 to 185 degrees, depending on what kind of consistency you want when the stuff is done. Uh, so a crushed red pepper beef barbacoa. And I think that the important thing as producers and especially as direct marketers, uh, we have to really get people to consider uh, consuming some of those products that aren't part of that 12% of the middle. It's really easy to sell that 12% of the middle. Some of those other things, much better dining experiences and much better um, comfort food, much simpler to prepare, uh, much longer window for people to be able to consume it in. Uh, you know, so I always like to push people into and. And that stuff, it's amazing when you um, take one of those cuts that would be a little bit tough, you know, if you threw it up on the grill for just a few minutes. But, you know, you put that thing in the water at 175 degrees for 12 hours, and oh my gosh, it's just falling apart, and it's really, really good. Thank you, Greg, for joining us today. We look forward to following you and working with you, and we appreciate all the work you do in the advocacy and local food system arena. To our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today, and be sure to follow along at USA on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube to stay updated on all things going on in the U.S. cattle and sheep industries. To become a member or to learn more about USA, visit r-calfusa.com. RCAF USA is set apart from all other national cattle associations because we rely solely on membership dues and donations to carry out our mission to ensure the continued profitability and independence of United States cattle and sheep producers. We exist only because of support from our members. We ask you to help support RCAF USA and become a member. Go to r-calfusa.com to sign up today.